The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, we come now to God's Word, and if you're watching online, we want to especially welcome you. And if you're here in the room, it's good to be together as God's people. Would you join me as we pray and ask the Lord for help? Father, incline our hearts to your Word. Open our eyes to see more of your glory. Incline our hearts to you. Unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us with your steadfast love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder how many history buffs we have in our myths. Who is the first face to appear on the one dollar bill? And it's not George Washington. Do you know? First face that was on the $1 bill in 1862 is a man by the name of Salmon Chase. Salmon like the fish. Salmon Portland Chase was a politician. He served as the 23rd governor of Ohio, served in the House of Representatives, uh, and served as the Secretary of Treasury, and then later as the sixth chief justice of the United States. He attempted to run for president against, uh, during Abraham Lincoln, uh, losing out to him, and instead served as Lincoln's secretary of the treasury. Why is this important? Well, he was an extremely ambitious man. One of his colleagues said this. He had an inordinate ambition, intense selfishness for official distinction, and considerable vanity. And so Chase was the Secretary of Treasury, and one of his jobs was to create the dollar bills and to design them. And so who does he put on the $1 bill? <laughs> Lo and behold, it's his own face. Most think that it was probably for a future presidential run. And a historian writes this about what Chase just did. He said, Chase had deliberately chosen to place his picture on the ubiquitous $1 bill rather than a bill of higher denomination, knowing that his image would thus reach the greatest number of people. So when most of us think of ambition, we think of someone like Salmon Chase. Ambition is defined as an ardent desire for rank or fame or power. So ambition's bad, right? Well, this morning what I want to do from Acts 20 is show Paul's extreme ambition and how we are actually to emulate Paul's ambition. But Paul's ambition isn't for fame or vanity or power or influence, but it's a gospel ambition, or what we might call a holy ambition. His aim was that Jesus would be honored and exalted and glorified more than anything else. And so the main point of our passage this morning is that believers should seek to cultivate gospel ambition. Every single believer should seek to cultivate an ambition for Christ. Now, Very few of us are like Paul. We're not itinerant evangelists or church planters. And yet I think we can learn from his example of single-minded devotion to Christ. And I think Acts 20 gives us a view of his single-minded devotion to Christ. And so the question I want to come back to again and again this morning is this. 
What type of ambitions should we have? What type of ambitions should we have? And I think Paul illustrates that for us in Acts 20. Now, before we get there, let me just kind of reorient us again. We're preaching through the book of Acts, and Acts 19 was all about Paul in Ephesus, and now he's on his finishing up his third missionary journey, and he travels from Ephesus all the way to Miletus. And then he calls the elders to him and, and gives them a word. And so our Uh, plan is to look at this passage in two main sections. In verses 1 through 16, we get a lot of kind of travel plans um, throughout verses 1 through 16, kind of 1 to 6 and then 13 to 16, and kind of nestled within there is the story of Eutychus. And then from 17 to 38, we get Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. And so we're going to look at this passage in these, these two main sections. So first, we come to Paul's travel log, verses 1 through 16. As we said already, it gives us kind of an overview of all of his different travels. He leaves Ephesus, goes through Macedonia and Greece, and finally gets to Miletus with the intention of going to Jerusalem by Pentecost. Now, what is Luke trying to reveal through travel instructions? I think he's highlighting two things about Paul's gospel ambition. His pattern of ministry and his priorities, his pattern of ministry and his priorities. Notice with me in in chapter 20, verse one, it says, Paul sent for the disciples. This is after the riot in Ephesus that we looked at last week. And after encouraging them, he said farewell. And then in verse two, it says he had gone through those regions and had given them what? Much encouragement. And then in verse 12, it says the people were not a little comforted, which means they got great encouragement. And then what's 17 to 38, uh, if we were to summarize it? It's a word of encouragement to the Ephesian elders. So Paul's pattern of ministry was to travel from place to place to bring encouragement to the saints. Paul was an ambitious encourager. Have you ever considered to have an ambition to be an ambitious encourager? Paul was the type of person that would walk around thinking, who can I build up in the faith today? What amazing way of thinking. If we'll remember, Barnabas was one of his first co-laborers. He was called the son of encouragement. My guess is Barnabas rubbed off on Paul just a little bit. And so for this morning, for us, what type of ambitions should we have as believers? Make it your ambition to encourage fellow believers. In an age of great discouragement and criticism and outrage and, and, and where all, all of everyone's grievances are readily available on the internet, let's be a people that seek to encourage one another in the Lord. And I will say that I think we as a North Campus are doing well in this. I have personally been encouraged by how many people who have told me what we're praying for the elders in this particularly tricky season. And so thank you. It's worth noting that he has another pattern of ministry that Paul worked alongside others. And in verses 4 through 6, we see that he mentions seven different names of people who traveled with him towards Jerusalem. And it's eight names if you think of Luke and joining this group as well, when in verse 6 he says, we went up, right? This could have been representatives of the churches 
to bring a gift to the church in Jerusalem, but either way, we see that Paul worked with a team. He wasn't a lone ranger, but he worked with others. So we see this pattern of ministry of Paul encouraging the saints and building up others and bringing them alongside him. The question that arises is, what, what, what's up with the story of Eutychus? It's kind of funny, you know, he falls out a window and, and kind of gets raised back to life, and then they, they go all night in teaching the Bible. Now, wh- why is this here? Well, I think Luke is trying to show us how Paul went about encouraging the saints. The most surprising thing about this whole account is not that Eutychus falls out the window. It's not that Paul raises him from the dead. We were told even his handkerchiefs and aprons were doing miracles. I think the most surprising thing is what happens afterwards. Now, Eutychus nearly dies, or he does die, and God, Paul raises him from the dead. God raises him from the dead. But what do they do afterwards? Look with me at verse 11. It says, Paul conversed with them a long while until daybreak. Now, I don't know about you. The last thing I want to do if my preaching has just caused someone to nearly die is to preach for another six or seven hours. But that's exactly what Paul does. And I think the point of the antidote is that Paul did this everywhere he went. What was his main aim? What was his ambition? What was he trying to get across? The most important thing is that you hear the whole counsel of the word of God, that Paul would teach everything that's contained in the scriptures, exposing all that was written in the Old Testament, how it all pointed to the person and work of Jesus. Paul was concerned about the gospel going forward, and he was concerned about the churches having all the information. We see that later in his speech to the Ephesians. What type of ambition did Paul have? His ambition was to encourage the saints by testifying to the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. To place a high priority on God's word. And so for us this morning, what type of ambitions should we have? Should we cultivate? I would say we should cultivate ambitions to know and love and share the word of God. I think of a church this big, maybe 1,500 people on a given weekend, and, and I think we need to develop a, a greater discipleship culture. And I think that only happens when we have young and old praying about who is someone else I can pass this good news along to. Or, or who can I mentor? Or who can I meet up with and read the Bible? I want to commend that to each and every single one of Whether you're gray hairs or not gray hairs, that every single one of us would prayerfully consider, who can I pour into for the sake of the next generation? Are we those who place a high priority on God's word? Not just encumbering to corporate worship, But throughout the week, as we read God's word and as we gather with others, explaining God's word or sharing how it's made an impact on our own lives. So I think this first section, we see Paul's ambition is a gospel ambition to encourage the saints with God's word. So this morning, are we driven to make much of Jesus Paul doesn't care about his fame, his reputation, or his power.
power. He doesn't shrink back when there are threats and reviling and slander and lies and hostility. And there was a lot of that everywhere he went. He says that. I know that imprisonments await me. Afflictions await me. There's just a massive riot and they probably would have tore me to pieces if I had gone in to the temple of Artemis. And yet, He's on a mission to testify to the grace of the gospel of Jesus. This morning, I know that there are many who are feeling fatigued, a little bit worn out, a little bit worn down, maybe just tired. You can count me in that category. Maybe it's the controversies or the divisions or the rumors have you confused and discouraged. And let me encourage you with the words of Paul in Galatians 6.9. Let us not grow weary of doing good. Why? For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't give up. God is powerfully at work in his church for his glory. And what we need to do is to cultivate ambition to make Christ known. For Paul, it meant continuing to encourage the saints. For us, it means gathering in corporate worship and sharing the good news and cultivating ambitions for Jesus. So I think that summarizes the first 16 verses. Now I want to turn to part two, Paul's address to the Ephesian elders in 17 to 38. He lands in Miletus, and he calls the Ephesian elders to come to him. And so they travel, and they come to him. And we're not entirely sure why. The text does tell us and says that he didn't want to go to Asia, because if he went, he probably would have to stay a while. There's so many people to see. He had been there three years. He had so many relationships, but he wanted to get to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. And so he calls them to come to him instead. Now, Luke gives us really a a significant chunk of this speech. And it's the only one in Acts from Paul directed to Christians. And so it's quite significant. And I think we can break down this speech into four sections. You can see the words and now as sort of a delineator in verses 22, verses 25, and verse 32. And so I think each of those separate it into four sections. And those four sections, I think, were shown Paul's example in Ephesus, Paul's expectation that he has in Jerusalem, his exhortation to the elders, and then his final encouragement. So an example, an expectation, an exhortation, and then an encouragement. So let's look at the first one in verses 18 to 21. We see Paul's example in Ephesus. And this is where Paul begins to recount his ministry. If we'll remember, he was there for three years and ministered to these Ephesians. So what type of ministry was this? He says it was characterized by humility and suffering. He says by tears and trials, but also with boldness. In verse 20, he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and house to house, testifying to both Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, I didn't hold back anything. I gave it all to you. Paul's example is one of selfless giving for the good of others. He did this in public and house to house, 
to Jews and to Greeks, and what was his focus of all that he shared. It was repentance and faith. You'll see that in verse 21. Repentance towards God and a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what was Paul's gospel ambition? His ambition was to declare the good news of Jesus, to hold back none of it so that people would be able to see and hear that repentance is needed, faith is needed in order to enter into the kingdom of God. What Paul was focused on was getting the message out so that everyone would hear it. It's massively surprising that in certain passages of Acts, we hear that all of Asia heard the gospel. Paul was zealous to get this good news out. His ambition was to declare repentance and faith in Jesus. Paul is not about his fame, his name, his brand, his platform, or his persona. And I would just say, be wary of pastors who are out to make a name for themselves rather than to make a name for Jesus. Repentance and faith ought to be an essential element of what every pastor speaks to the people of God. What type of ambitions should we have? Gospel ambitions, evangelistic ambitions with humility and selflessness. Paul takes Jesus and his mission and his words seriously and takes himself less seriously. Now look with me at the second section in 22 to 24. Here we get Paul's expectation in Jerusalem. He's kind of building his argument here. He says in verse 22, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He says he's constrained by the Spirit. And then in verse 24, he says, but I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I think this second section where he talks about his expectation in Jerusalem reveals two things. Paul's ambition is radically God-focused and it's mission-focused. It's God-centered and mission-focused. The value of Paul's life It is not that he would find preservation, that he would live a long life. His aim is to finish the course that he's received. Paul's expectation is suffering's going to come. Imprisonments are going to come. I'm not worried about that. My only aim is that I finish the task, that I complete the mission. He cares more about the fame of Jesus, cares more about the mission of Jesus than he cares about his own life. Does that characterize us today? What type of ambition should we have? We should have the type of ambition that holds Jesus above ourselves. Pick up your cross and follow me. That doesn't leave a lot of room for, for, for anything else. And it's not to say that that's all we do. But I think in our current cultural climate, we can care way too much about ourselves and way too little about God. Care way too little about God's mission. Care way too little about the fame of Jesus. 
we should indeed be grieved that there are so many who do not proclaim the name of Christ. So cultivate an ambition that longs to see Jesus grow more important than ourselves. Now, number three, verses 25 to 31, Paul's exhortation to the elders. In the third section, he says in verse 25 that none of you will see my face again. He basically says these are his final face-to-face words. Listen up. And then he says he's innocent of their blood because he didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So he's repeating an earlier theme that he made already. I I didn't hold anything back. There's no kind of second-tier mystical knowledge that you got to pay more money or kind of be in this long enough so that we kind of give you that special information. I gave it all to you so that you would know Jesus. Then Paul gets to the heart of his speech in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. He basically is saying, be alert. The reason he gives this is because there's a need to be vigilant and alert. And the reason is because there will be fierce wolves that come in and even some false teachers from within. He also says that you've been made overseers of the church that belongs to Jesus, that was obtained with his own blood. Now, Paul's words are spoken to the elders, and I think one application of this text is for our elders to heed these very words. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. Be alert. And for congregants... Look for elders who will heed these words. But I think it's important to apply this even more broadly as well. In the worldwide church, we're told from this text that there will always be heresies and schisms and even those from within the church who will rise up to distort and twist the truth in order to draw away disciples. In every single generation, there will be those who will twist and distort the truth of the gospel. And that's why Paul's words are so apt for every generation and especially for the elders of Christ's church. We shouldn't be surprised when there are fierce wolves from within the church. There are all sorts of worldly ways of thinking that are attempting to creep into the church in this particular day and age. And it's going to require admonishment and rebuke and teaching. That's precisely what Paul says in his address to the Ephesians. He says, for three years, I did not stop day and night to admonish you with tears. And I think this is particularly challenging in our day and age right now, because any disagreement, and people say, you hurt me. Any admonishment, and and now you're becoming perhaps a bully. I think there is a very real desire for us to speak about the contentious issues at work in our culture. And yet when we do so, we need to be able to hold up the whole counsel of God and do the work of rebuking and admonishing when it's necessary. And I think that's going to be really challenging. I, I will just admit, it, is, it feels very challenging right now because there's accusations of being harsh or abusive or domineering. 
in this current cultural context. And, and it's not just our church. It's, it's, it's across the world. And so what do we do with this? I think we ought to consider carefully what is true and to judge everything, hold it up to the whole counsel of God. What does God's word say about these things? And then how do we move forward from them? A gentle admonishment or a firm rebuke is indeed part of the job of the elder, despite the unpopularity of doing so. And yet we cannot teach the whole counsel of God if we're unwilling to stand for the whole counsel of God. Much more can be said, but I will say this. This text is a reminder for me and for my fellow elders to take this to heart. We need to pay careful attention to ourselves and to all the flock. And so I would ask you as congregants, pray for your elders to be vigilant and alert. And I will say, I think that the events that we see unfolding in our church are precisely because the elders have sought to pay careful attention to ourselves and to one another. We have sought to admonish day and night one another with tears and sought not to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Pray for God to continue to give us help. I believe that he will. So what type of ambitions should we cultivate? For elders, be zealous to seek to be vigilant in the task of shepherding the flock that has been entrusted to you. And for congregants, for us, not bucking against the whole counsel of God when it's taught, even when it's accompanied by gentle admonishment or firm rebuke. Now we come to Paul's final section, his final encouragement in 32 to 35. He says this in 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. What Paul's doing in this final section is he's just giving them encouragement. You're you're, you're not going to see my face ever again. I'm departing. I'm going to Jerusalem. I know that prison and, and afflictions await me, but I'm entrusting to you, to the one that I've preached about this entire time for these three years. I'm entrusting you to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he's going to take care of you and watch out for you. He's able to build you up and to give you the inheritance. He's going to preserve you. Make sure that you finish. And then he reiterates how he ministered to them with his own hands, working hard, helping the weak. He wasn't in it for selfish gain, but selfless service to Jesus. And in that final reminder, he exhorts them, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So if we come back to the opening question, what type of ambition should we cultivate? It's an ambition that trusts in God's sovereign hand. And it's the type of ambition that believes that selfless giving is what is needed. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Our ambition is not to get as much as we can, but to give in order to maximize our joy in Christ. In verses 36 to 38, Luke gives this tearful farewell. In verse 37, it says, There was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul, and they kissed him. I think it's so stunning. 
Paul was so single-minded in his devotion, so ambitious to make Christ known, so focused on this. But it didn't make him aloof and weird and standoffish. It made him beloved among those whom he ministered to. May that be true of us as we become increasingly single-minded, devoted, ambitious to make Christ known, that it wouldn't make us aloof to those around us, but more beloved because of what God is doing in us as we seek to help others grow in Christ's likeness. I have a few concluding questions I want to help us to apply this truth. First question is, do we have any ambitions for God? Sometimes, for many of us, when we think of ambition, we think of selfishness, trying to become famous. We don't want to be like Sam and Chase, get our face on the $1 bill. But do we have any ambitions for God to see him known? My guess is many of us have various goals in our life, maybe health goals, you know, get our cholesterol down, maybe lose a little bit of weight, maybe exercise a little bit more, maybe some professional goals, get another degree or get a promotion or earn a little bit more money, maybe some financial goals. You know, I'm going to pay off the mortgage someday. And yet, when it comes to having goals or ambitions for Jesus, are we content to coast? Or do we have some God-given ambition stirring up from our heart so that we would make Christ known? Hear this quote from John Stott, pastor and theologian, and what he said about ambition. He said, Ambitions for self may be quite modest, but ambitions for God, however, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little bit more honor in the world? No. Once we are clear that God is king, then we long to see him crowned with glory and honor and accorded his true place, which is the supreme place. We become ambitious for the spread of his kingdom and righteousness everywhere. Like we saw last week, if we really believe in the preciousness of Jesus Christ, if he's truly the treasure, the pearl of greatest price, then will we not give our lives to Jesus? Will we not cultivate ambitions to make Christ known? Will we not seek to proclaim the good news to the lost? So I have a series of questions for us to consider. Are we ambitious to encourage fellow believers, to spur them on in their walk, to speak more words of edification than we speak words of criticism? Do we pray for ways to be an encouragement? Do we speak words that are seasoned with salt, timely, encouraging, appropriate for the moment, and giving grace to all those who hear? Are we ambitious to teach and instruct and to explain God's word to others? To your children before they leave the nest. Time is ticking with our neighbors, with our friends, or our colleagues. Do we seek to share the word of God for the benefit of others? Are we eager to testify to the gospel of the grace of God? Are we spending our lives and being spent for the sake of of Jesus.
doesn't mean you have to be doing this every single moment, otherwise you should feel guilty and condemned. But do we even have any ambition for Christ? Ambition to be hospitable, ambition to share the gospel, ambition to encourage and build up, ambition to mentor and invest in others, ambition to teach and to serve and to welcome and to strengthen and to learn and to grow. My desire is that in the midst of this really difficult season in the midst of our church, and there's lots of things to sort through and and lots of things to talk through and and lots of things to wrestle with and to gain clarity on, but the one thing I am praying for is that these things will not be used by Satan to distract us from the main thing. Yes, it's good to give appropriate attention to working through all those things as is needed. And yet, let's not get our sights off course. Let's not be misaligned. Where should our hearts be? Where should our view be? Where should our sights be set? They should be set on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen, exalted, ascended into heaven, ruling and reigning on high, and he welcomes us and calls us to join and be part of the mission. And this gospel will be preached to the very ends of the earth. God is doing that right now. And so, do we have ambitions for Jesus? Hudson Taylor said this. I'll end with this. If I had a thousand pounds, Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China, in case you didn't know. He had a thousand pounds, China should have it. If I had a thousand lives, China should have them. No, not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious savior? We don't have a thousand lives, but we have one. And God is not calling us to work harder, to do more in order to earn any acceptance. But instead, he welcomes us. We have received repentance and faith. We have been welcomed into his family. We have been given the power, indwelling power of the Holy Spirit so that we would walk in all his ways. We have Jesus Christ on our side. And now we have one life to live, to use in the advance of the gospel. Oh, that we would be a people that would not get merely distracted, but that we would keep our focus on cultivating gospel ambitions so that Jesus Christ would be preached to the very ends of the earth and then he would return. Let's pray. Father, we long for Jesus to be exalted in our hearts, in our minds, and in this gathering. So give us holy ambitions, gospel ambitions, so that Christ would be greatly exalted. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 
5415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.